Well, it's a delight to be with you this morning, um, and I'm so excited to be able to open up the Word of God and continue our series on um, going through the book of Genesis, a book of beginnings. Um, it's a really great opportunity, I think, to examine um, really the origins of Christianity. What is Christianity? What, what is the heart of what we believe? And I have to admit that I approach um, the book of Genesis with maybe a bit of fear and some wonder. Um, it is a rather large book, um, but it's not just because of that. It's not because it's large or because it can't be understood or because it's irrelevant. It's not, it's not also because <clears throat> some might look at its content as being the faith of another time, some kind of relic of the ancient world um, where we just don't believe, our enlightened minds just don't believe these silly things anymore. So we're kind of dealing with some hot topics as well, some conflicting issues. Um, but that's not so much why I approach it like this either, with a sense of fear or wonder, <clears throat> but because I sense in its message more profoundly that I'm on holy ground. Uh, its content, it's just almost at times too bright to handle. And when I hear those words, in the beginning, or he created the stars also. Or in the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. I, I almost have like the same kind of reaction um, as if you've heard of that story in the New Testament where people were approaching Christ and asking him if he was Jesus. And he said, I am he. And they fell to the ground as dead men at the proclamation of the name of Christ kind of feel like that a bit when I, when I open the Word of God. And maybe, maybe it's a little bit like Moses felt, you know, when he stood before that, that bush that was on fire, but not consumed, and hearing a voice from the, from the heavens saying, take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy. Uh, David reflected, believe it or not, on Genesis chapter 1 in the book of Psalms in chapter 8. And he says this, just thinking and considering and praying through Genesis chapter 1. He says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe, the foe and the avenger. He says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place... What is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's interesting as we approach the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, <clears throat> we might read it as some kind of ancient story of fiction. We might believe it as God's word, but wrestle with what it means and how literal to take it or not. But I approach it with a sense of awe and wonder at the vast power and creative genius and love of our God in heaven. There's a, a comic novel called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Have you ever heard of this? The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was actually made into a movie. But the book was written by Douglas Adams, and it tells a story about the end of life on Earth and one, one man's search for the meaning of life. It's, it's a pretty funny movie, actually. In the start of the movie, um, the movie rendition, it pictures the earth being destroyed 
by some alien life force to make room for a galactic highway. The earth is in the way, and they need to get rid of it so that they can make a highway. <laughs> and, that, and that's how the movie starts. It's, in the very beginning, there's this missile aimed at the earth. It's about to get exploded to oblivion. And this one man kind of gets zapped off the earth. There's really only one, one person that's saved from humanity. He gets taken off. And this, this leads this man to, um, to start seeking out the answer to the meaning of life. And this is how he says it. The meaning of life, the universe, and everything. What is the meaning of life, the universe, and everything? And eventually, just kind of in his adventures and along with different people, he comes along this supercomputer called Great Thought who provides the answer. They ask him, supercomputer, what is Great Thought? What is the, the, the meaning of life, the universe, and of, and of everything? And it's just like this holy hush kind of goes across the crowd and all of a sudden it announces the answer. 42. <laughs> Curious. That doesn't make any sense, right? You laugh, we all laugh when we hear that answer, of course. It was meant to be funny. It makes no sense. Unless you're Douglas Adams, the book's author. Because, see, Douglas Adams does not believe in God. Douglas Adams is an atheist. And I acknowledge that all, not all atheists conclude this about life, but his, his atheism leads him to the conclusion that there really is no answer to that question. There is no answer to the meaning of life Life is just kind of random, it's meaningless, it's absurd, so just try to enjoy it as best you can um, while you're alive. And that's really the conclusion he's led to. So any, the reason that the answer is ridiculous is because life is ridiculous, uh, according to Douglas Adams at least. Now there are many answers I think that people try to give to why are we here? Why is my heart beating in my chest? Why are those stars twinkling in the sky? What's going on? Genesis 1, I think, opens a door um, that not many uh, are willing to walk through. It provides answers to our deepest existential questions. Questions, that is, of origin, questions of identity, questions of purpose. Answers that explain and solve the human dilemma, the soul dilemma. I think we all know that there's a soul dilemma dilemma that we all share in common. Something's off. You might not be miserable. You might not be depressed. You might suffer with anxiety or depression. Something's broken. I think we can all at least acknowledge that truth. Genesis deals with these, this profound material. And, fr and friends, it, it's so profound. I'm not sure that we'll actually get through the whole book of Genesis. I'm thinking we might just do the first 12 chapters. <clears throat> We could be in chapter one alone for a year. <laughs> it's, it's so packed with information. Different conversations could be started about different ideas that it presents. But we are going to chew on the content of chapters one through three, at least in the, few, in the next few sermons to come. And this week I would like to expose really what I think is the heart of Genesis chapter one. The main lesson the author is leading us to. Because like I said, there's so many things you could talk about in Genesis 1. And in the weeks to come, we're going to deal with some of those things. But I really want to, I don't want to miss the real meaning of it. The heart, the big idea, the central point of Genesis chapter 1. God, us, life. There are many fascinating things that happen. Creatures and plants and stars and blessings and fruitfulness and all these wonderful things are happening. But all this, I believe, is meant to adorn, like jewelry, the heart of the account, what it's really about. 
the primary reason why, are, why we are being told about the creator or the creation is not so much to answer historic or scientific questions. And that's important. God is not communicating this to us to tell us exactly per se how he created. He's telling us this because he wants us to know why he created. See? We can learn some things about how he created, but that is besides the point of Genesis chapter 1. The heart of Genesis chapter 1 is why he did it. There's a larger message of greater importance. Not so much how or that this world began, but why it began. Now I've titled this message because of this, The Heart in You. And I hope that you understand why by the close of the sermon. What, what can we observe, observe from this creation story, if anything, that informs us about who God is and therefore who we are and why he made us? And that exposing the heart in us. The first thing I think that we should observe, number one, is that God, in Genesis chapter 1, it's clear that he is not the created thing. He is different he is separate. Now this might seem like an obvious ob observation. And maybe even kind of, if you believe in God, kind of an obvious thing. I haven't met many people that, that think anymore that, that, the, that the trees are God or that we're God. Although that isn't in some religions. But most people, I think at least in our culture, if you believe in God, you don't think you're him. <laughs> right? Um, and, you, and you probably don't think that the created stuff around you is him. Now, now, again, that's not to say that people don't believe that, or maybe you do believe that this morning, but I, I would say in our culture, by and large, that's the general um, point of view. But friends, it's, it's important to recognize that the book of Genesis has a historical context. You see, the, the pervading world religion at the time did not believe that. They believed that the created things were God. They worshipped idols. They believed that gods had a beginning. They believed that the gods came from the material universe. So for all of a sudden, a, a Jewish community to claim that there is a God separate from the universe that does not depend on the universe was a very radical and very different culturally challenging idea at the time. Greek and Babylonian mythology, the gods often came up out of the earth and the sea. The sun itself was worshipped as God. Um, they worshipped the sun. Ezekiel chapter 8 even kind of um, makes this known and explains some of this culture um, that was around them at the time. Son of man, he says, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness? Each, of, each at the shrine of his own idol, worshipping some statue as God himself. I saw women, women sitting there mourning the god Tamaz, right? So worshiping created things. That's what Tamaz was. He then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men with their back, backs toward the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east. They were bowing down to the sun. You see, it was very common in pagan religion, in the ancient Near East, to worship created things, to think that those things were God himself. But this radical notion comes through the mouth of Moses and says, in the beginning, God created those things. He is not those things. C.S. Lewis says that the whole universe, 
the very conditions of time and space under which it exists are produced by the will of a perfect, timeless, unconditioned God who is above and outside all that he makes. Now that might be a mouthful, but understand what he's saying is that God is not us or this world. God is outside of it. And what's more, he is unconditioned. And what that means is that he does not have a creator himself. He is timeless. He is existence. Upon which all existence depends. See? If the created thing is not God himself, and if he is the only being that is and always was, how might this inform our needs, and our purpose as human beings. Just think about this logically. If our existence originates, depends, and is conditioned on a God unconditioned, uncreated, and timeless. Might I suggest that the New Testament writer makes clear the answer to this question in Acts chapter 8. Let me read it to you. The God who made the world and everything in it. Now, mind you, this is uh, the New Testament Paul speaking to pagan philosophers who do not believe in one God that was uncreated, right? The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. In other words, we don't have to make idols for him. Rather, he himself gives everyone life. He himself gives everyone breath. And he gives us everything else that we need. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this, here's the answer, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us for in him we live and move and have our being. You see, the uncreated God, what does that teach us about our purpose? Well, we need him. If our lives are conditioned on the unconditional one, it means that our lives are empty without him. It means that as much as we might, it means that the food that you eat, the people, the the relationships that you have, all the things that you enjoy, everything else was given to you by him as well. You see, he is the source of life. He is the source. In him we live. In him we move. Isn't this interesting language? In him we move. I'm moving my arms. I'm blinking my eyes. I'm doing that because he enables me to do that. You see, friends, he is the sustainer of life. I am nothing without him. If our existence depends on an outside force, it would mean that our life is bound up to that force. And if our life, then our very being, our very soul, won't find any satisfaction outside of the Creator. God needs nothing. He does not need someone to call Him to being because He is being Himself. He is. He does, not someone, he does not need someone to keep him being. God does not die. He is the one that is and is to come. We and all other things, by the way, all other created things on the other hand, 
We are sourced in him. He gives us life and breath and everything else. He gives us motion, life, and being. Colossians chapter 2 in the New Testament, we read this. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, talking about Jesus. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. The the author is basically saying that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And look look at what Jesus' job is. He sustains all things by his powerful word. That means that the the reason we can make scientific inquiry, the reason it works and it's repeatable, is because God is sustaining the laws of science. See? He's sustaining the, the heart beating in my chest. He keeps us alive. God is not simply the one who pressed the play button and walked away from it. He created and sustains us. If that's the message of Genesis 1, what does it say about our life? What does it say about our situation? That God sustains it. That God is in control. And I know that that's mysterious because I know so so much tragedy can happen. But friends, what is the alternative besides an all-loving, all-good, all-controlling God? If there is not that, then the, the tragedy and horrors of life are arbitrary. They're meaningless. There is no just judge that will make right injustice. So we get away with it. That's why Paul says, if there is no resurrection from the dead there is no God in heaven and a resurrection from the dead, then eat, drink, and be merry. Do what you want, for tomorrow we die. See? If God is not the created thing, and I am not God, he is separate from me in all creation, this must mean that we need him more than the thing that we think we need. You see? Second, God is not depicted in the created thing, but expressed. That's something else we learn, particularly in the creation of mankind in his image, in God's image. The created thing, according to Dr. Klein, is an accurate representation of God, but it's not a facsimile. Does that make sense? The created thing is, not, is an ac- accurate... In other words, we can look at creation and learn about God from what he has made, but that doesn't mean that, that those created things are God. It's not a facsimile, but rather a depiction, uh, excuse me, an expression. The created thing is an, accurate, an adequate represent, representation, but not a facsimile. Psalm chapter 9 says this, Psalm chapter 19 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Well, how do they do that? Well, the heavens are pretty glorious. That's how they declare the glory of God. They're They're infinitely vast and beautiful and wonderful. So it's telling, it's declaring that the maker must also be beautiful and wonderful and powerful. So the heavens declare a message about God, the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Now this is important for us to understand so as not to think that God is so linked to his creation that there is no difference or that, we, that we, his creation somehow becomes God, right? 
This is why the second command reads in the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other idols. We shall not think of any created thing as being actually God himself. So the maker and what is made is not one but two. We, we, we might explain God and the majesty of God, but we are not him. You see, God is not us and we are not him. That's point two, and that's what point two means. <clears throat> Lewis wisely comments how very hard this was to do in the ancient Near East and still more to keep on doing. We do not easily realize. You see, you might say, oh, pish posh, I don't, I don't think a, a, an idol is God. I don't think the trees are God. I don't think I'm God. Well, I think sometimes we need to stop and and really evaluate whether or not that's true. We might think in our, in, in our enlightened minds, even, let's go even further, there is no God, so it's impossible for me ever to think that I'm or anything else is God. The, the world is what it is. The, it's, the world is here. Right? Okay, hold on a second, let's back up. If the world is the thing that we are sourced from, then what's the world? In our philosophy, at least, the world is our God, isn't it? We might not say he's a personal God, but that is what we get our source from. The world becomes our God. We have imputed to it a divine right of sorts. Because in this world, we live and move and have our being, right? You see? It's not much different than the idea of that our ancient polytheistic friends had back then, that I am the earth, and I am the moon, and I am the stars and the trees. So while creation is not somehow mystically becoming God, we need to look at Romans 1, because creation does teach us something about God. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. Isn't that interesting? What the Bible is saying is that the existence of God is clear. It's clear, and we know it. It's clearly seen. Since the creation, his invisible qualities, his power, his divine nature is clearly seen. Now, you're probably sick of this this illustration, but I'll give it again. And here's one of the reasons why it's clearly seen. Almost every day I get uh, coffee from Sip and Dip. I, l- I like Sip and Dip. Um, I, I abandoned Dunkin' Donuts, and I'm at Sip and Dip now. It's my new coffee. So every day I get coffee. How many people get coffee? Right, okay. We raise them up if you have them with you. That's okay. You're not breaking the rules. You can drink coffee in here. So lots of you have coffees. Let me see. Someone just raised one up. Let's look at Tracy. That's Tracy. Right, well, raise your coffee up nice and high. Oh, we got another one back there. But look at Tracy's, though. Yeah, and April. Look at, your, look at April's, too. Anyone get a small from Dunkin' Donuts? A small coffee? No? Okay, well, lift yours up too, April. Nice and high. Keep them up. Don't put them down. Go ahead, Tracy. Come on. You're not listening. All right. Oh, Helen's got one too. So you see, you see, the, top, you see the top of April's co- coffee cup lid? You see how it's flat? And Tracy, look at Tracy's. Tr- Tracy's got that, like, lip. Well, you, know, well, you know why that is? There was an engineer. Joe, Joe, you're kind of an engineer, right? Um, kind of. 
<laughs> He's not a real one. <laughs> so someone had a brilliant idea one day, because you, if you ever get a small one, how many people get a small hot coffee from Dunkin' Donuts, and you're just, I can't even drink this until I'm where I'm going. Because I'm gonna, this thing's going to spill all over me. One little teeny bump, it's on me, because it's got the flat lid. Right? Well, Trey, someone was thinking, because one day, um, they said, let's fix this problem. This is ridiculous. You know, people are getting stains all over their shirts. Let's make a lid that lifts higher so that it's got a little more, like, splash room <laughs> so it doesn't go on people's laps. Isn't that a great idea? That's a great I love that idea. So I can, I, can, I can set up my coffee with that new lid, and I can think, wow, isn't it wonderful that some engineer thought of this for me I don't have to keep spilling coffee on myself, right? Isn't that great? But for some reason, we have a really hard time thinking to ourselves, isn't it great that when I get a cut on my arm, that someone thought to make my body heal itself? We can't do that. We don't want to give... God credit for that. You see, Romans, that's what Romans 1 means. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. If I can look at that cup and just presume that a designer, an engineer, made that thing because it's got design, I should be able to do that with myself. Something as simple as my, my body, my eyes. They focus. Like I can, I can look far and then close and they focus automatically. Are you serious? We make things, like the things that we create are just copying the things that we see around us. The divine power, the creator, the maker gave us an example to follow. The created thing. So friends, we are not God, but we do tell a story about him. You see, friends, when we look at the heavens, when we look at each other, it should tell a story about God. That God is, that, that even though he is not the created thing and we are not him, he is glorious, he is powerful, he is brilliant. He has all power, all knowledge, he is timeless. And we depend on him completely. If we are not a facsimile of God, but an expression of God, if, these are the, if we are meant to tell a story about God, then our greatest satisfaction is only going to come from knowing him and being like him. You see? Acknowledging his presence in our lives and imitating who he is. In the weeks to come, we'll learn more about what that means. Well, who is he? How do I imitate him? Well, that's, that's a sermon to come. Consider this too. If we are not God, then we're off the hook. Right? We're off the hook. What do you mean, Kyle? Well, we're off the hook from being him. We don't have to be God. We don't have to be in control of everything. That means we can take a day off. That means we can rest. When you go to sleep at night, it's a reminder that you're not God. That you have to sleep. Like there's something about you that if you don't sleep, if you don't take a break, then it's going to be the end of you as we know it. You see, we're not God. We're off the hook. That's good news. Our greatest satisfaction comes with him and we're off the hook. God's job is taken and he's not accepting applications. The, <laughs> though the creation is not God, we are a symbol, we are a manifestation of him, 
the chief manifestation of God being humanity himself, mankind. Only humankind is said to be created in his image. Not angels, not birds, or plants, or stars, or planets. Only humanity. Isn't that incredible? God kissed the proverbial frog, and out came us. Mankind created in his image. Incredible. We, as the rest of creation, we're actors in the drama of God's great story, of which he is the author. We are the objects that declare the author's message, period. He's in control. And friends, this fills us with purpose. No matter who we, who we might be, no matter what we've struggled with or are struggling with, you see, God has created you in his image, and you get the profound job of being able to imitate him and represent him to this world. Praise God for this. But let's make a third observation, number three. Creation is not a mere datum, but an achievement. As one author so eloquently said, creation is not a mere datum, but an achievement. Let me explain to you what I mean. If there's anything you might get out of Genesis, get this, that God is the hero. God's doing this. Not us. Not the angels. The earth isn't helping. Some force isn't helping. It's God. God speaks and it happens. The beauty and wonder of all creation is not chance and it's not arbitrary. Creation was an intentional and a divine choice. You see? That's what it means by it's not a datum but an achievement. It is an accomplishment of divine power. It's something God did. We read in Genesis 1, he created the stars also, almost as a footnote. He hadn't really mentioned the stars. He mentioned all this other stuff, and, he's, and it says all of it. It's almost like you trip over it, and he created the stars also. It's like, wait, well, hold on, back up. Do you know how many stars there are? And he created the stars also? Billions of galaxies consisting of billions of stars in each galaxy. And all we get is, and he created those too? You see, that's what I meant earlier in the sermon, that you know, sometimes we read Genesis as a how-to book rather than a why. He doesn't tell us how he does it. He just says that he does it. And almost like it was kind of easy. Right? Oh, and he created the stars too. <laughs> it was kind of that was that was pretty simple for, for me to do that. So Genesis 1 isn't as concerned about how the earth was created, but who created it. The one who did it. The one who fashioned the stars in the sky and hung them. The one who keeps the earth on its orbit. The one who created all the variety of animals is the one who knows you and loves you by name, knows you by name and loves you and has your, the hairs counted on your head. You see, friends, and not only that, he created you to be his imitator, to be in intimate relationship with him. You are the most unique and special creation of all of God's creatures because he created you to be his bride. He doesn't marry the stars or the fish or even angels in the end of time, in the book of Revelation, at the end, this is the first book, the book at the end, he marries his bride, the church, the people he rescues. 
Isn't that fantastic? So, ladies and gentlemen, can I introduce, introduce you to a better bridegroom? You know, oh, I really wish that guy would, he's so cute. She would like me, and I'm such a, hold on, hold on a second. Because you have, you have someone way more powerful, way more prestigious, way more beautiful, that is winking at you right now. He sees you from across the room, and he loves you. So can you pay attention to him? You know, st stop being interested in Screech, you know, and Steve Urkel. <laughs> right? Look to Christ. Look to the maker, the one who fashioned the galaxies so that you would know who he is. Remember what we read in Acts 8? He did all this so that we would seek him and find him and know him and love him. This powerfully, this powerful, orderly, beautiful, creative genius is the hero, our hero, and every single day, all creation reminds us of this lone figure, this gigantic power, who the Bible says holds the oceans of the earth in the hollow of his hand, who measures the mountains of the earth on his scales. He can be trusted. You can rest in him. He's in control. He knows you by name. He created you in his image. And he daily makes himself known, himself known to you by what he, his wonderful accomplishments in creation. Fourthly and finally, and here is the heart, I think, of this sermon, the soul of humanity is only satisfied in her right relationship with this God, with this creator. And let me prove that to you. I want to just say things. I want to show you. In the Hebrew, the word for creature, we see it all over Ch Genesis chapter 1. The word for creature is nephesh. And it's the same word used for the human soul, which is interesting. So let the waters uh, teem with living creatures. Let the land produce living creatures. So this word creatures is all over, all over Genesis chapter 1. We see certain ones of these creatures coming out of something created already. And friends, let me just explain to you that it's the, the writer of Genesis isn't trying to say that the earth created something or the sea created something. It's just using this language as imagery, and you'll, uh, hopefully this will make sense in a moment. But it does say that the land produced the land creatures, the sea produced the sea creatures, and it uses this word creature, the word creature, soul, nephesh, referring to passionate, this is the definition, passionate appetites and desires of all living things. The nephesh is the passionate appetite and desire that we all have. Right? We have passions. We have appetites. We have desires. All living things have these. For animals, things like food things like sex. But when we get to humanity, we don't see humanity being produced by the land or produced by the sea. But when we get to humanity in Genesis chapter 1, he is being produced by God himself as the image bearer of God. Now this is incredibly profound. 
And we need to pay attention to this. He says, let us make man in our own image. And I think if, we're, if we really think this through, the imagery is not only beautiful, but so life-transforming. The animal creatures are produced by land and sea. And therefore, their appetites, their souls are satisfied by the things that come from the land and sea. Right? Food, sex, and the like. Because the earth produces them, their soul, their nefesh, their appetites are satisfied with those things. We don't, we don't see animals striving for things such as we do. Okay? But humanity is a different creature. Humanity is produced by God himself. Humanity is the imago Dei, the image of God. We are produced by him. Therefore, our nefesh, our soul, our appetite is not satisfied in the things which satisfy the rest of the created world. Our soul only finds rest, it only finds satisfaction in the creator. Our chief appetite is for him whether you realize it or not. Psalm 42 says this, As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for my God. My soul, my nephesh, thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet him? The nephesh, the soul of the deer, pants for the water and is satisfied. But when we pant for water, safety, security, right, Life, you know, physical life, when we pant for, the, for these things, we're not satisfied. We're still empty. Something's still not complete. Oh, how about the donkey that sniffs out a mate and finds her and is satisfied with her? See, I know that might be a little bit of a crass <laughs> illustration here, but the donkey sniffs out a mate, finds her, and is satisfied with her. But friends, we, when we have our sex instinct and we fill it, we still yet remain unsatisfied. Something's missing still. It's because our nefesh, our soul, is not produced by the land or the sea. We are the image of God. We are produced by God himself. And, and a, your soul, right? Remember this powerful statement. Your soul will not find rest until you find rest in him. It won't happen. And can I just dare you? Can I challenge you to try it? Can I challenge you to seek him? Seek him out. Because he loves you. If the human soul, if the human creature is produced by God, then it can only be satisfied in his welcomed presence. Amen? So, when I look at Genesis 1, I see so much more than the interesting things that God created. I see God in all his vast glory and splendor, and I see man who absolutely is desperate for him. See, that's what I see. We're not him, he's not us, yet we are lifeless and lost without him. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray, Lord, that we would not fight you, but love you. God, if there's anyone in this room tonight that does not know you, God, I pray, Lord, that right now in the silence of their own heart that they would start doing business with you. That they would start crying out to you. God, I pray, Lord, reveal yourself. Help them to think about all of the wonderful things 
that should be evidence of your love and charity, that should lead them to you. Friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ, see, we're lost, we're broken in sin, and we're going to get to that in chapter 3. But friends, our, our, sin, our sin keeps us from God, but Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, sent to die for us and to pay its penalty, reconnects us back to Him. Our sins are forgiven and the relationship is reconciled and our soul can be satisfied in Him. Friends, Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The life. Come to Him this morning. Friend, if you don't know Jesus... Coming to Christ and being saved, quote-unquote. It's not some magic trick. You don't have to do some dance or some silly thing. You have to repent. That's what the Bible says. You have to change your mind. That's what that word means. Change your mind about your sin. Change your mind about God. And change your mind about your need for Christ to save you. And He will. And you'll be with Him forever. He loves you. Come to Christ. Friend, if that's you, I want to <clears throat> ask you during our time of communion, I'm going to be standing in the middle um, between the elements. And if you're coming to faith in Christ, or maybe you just have questions about it, you want me to pray for you, why don't you come up right in the front and I'll do that with you. Maybe you're here tonight and you're, this morning, excuse me, and you're a Christian and you just need someone to pray for you. Well, that's fine too. Come on up and I'll pray for you. God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for your created thing. God, we thank you for your majesty and glory. Help us to be satisfied in you. And as we take our communion, God, I pray that we would remember your goodness and kindness in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.